Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We made it to another weekend, and it is officially really fall. Coming up, Hannah Georges wrote an amazing article for The Atlantic revealing the unwritten rules in the writers' rooms of black TV shows going back to the golden age of network sitcoms to today. We're so far from a place where those stories are not constantly filtered through what's comfortable or relatable or understandable to white executives and, and audiences. Plus, ecologist Meg Lauman talks to us about her new memoir, which details the glass ceiling she broke as a lady who climbed trees for science in the 1970s. So I was tiptoeing in a man's world for a lot of my career, and I didn't even know girls could be scientists when I was young. But first, let's take a minute and look back at the week that was. With us this week, we have two excellent Chicago journalists. We've got Mina Bloom, a reporter for Block Club Chicago. Mina, hey. Hey, Greta. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And we've got Brandon Pope. He's an anchor and reporter at CW26 in Chicago. Brandon, welcome. Greta, great to hear you. Great to to be with you. Uh, Yay. Okay, so I think we should start with um, what's really big COVID news this week, which is that we learned the Pfizer vaccine should be available for 5 to 11-year-olds by Halloween. This is extremely long-awaited, especially, obviously, for those who have school-age kids. Um, Mask mandates are different everywhere. It's all been very confusing for a very long time. Um, Now, Brandon, do you have kids? You're childless, right? I am childless, fortunately. I'm very (laughs) happy about that one. But I have a niece and nephew. You Um, do. Yeah, six years old and four years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is this is great news. It's interesting in my in my family. My mom, their grandma, wants them to be vaccinated Mm. and wants them to take that shot. Their mom, though, my sister, isn't for it at all. And she doesn't want to get a vaccine either. Hmm. The interesting part is she works in hospitals. Wow. We've been trying to communicate to her like how important this is. So we're still working on her, but she is uh, resistant, especially for her kids. That's interesting. I actually was at a going away party for a friend last night and was chatting with someone who mentioned, I think she had six-year-old twins and then an 11-year-old. And, you know, just kind of to make conversation, I was like, so, like, how excited are you that you can get your kids vaccinated soon? And she was kind of similar. And she said she is vaxxed. She she was very clear to, like, state to me that she's not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch. But she was like, yeah, I just don't trust. Like, there's not enough data yet about kids. So I think we're going to wait. I was just really surprised by that. I And I don't know, maybe it's just because, like, most of the parents I hang out with are essentially, like, counting down the days until they don't have to worry about their kids as much, you know? What are the conversations you're having with parents, Mina? So, yeah, I'm childless, too. But um, and I like really most of my friends and people that I know, like have younger kids, so they don't really fit in that mm-hmm. age bracket. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm on Twitter a lot and like Facebook, unfortunately, <laughs> for my job. <laughs> um, and it, to me, like the people in my networks 
seem really excited. Like, this is something that they've been wanting for a long time, especially given that schools have reopened. Like, that is, you know, there's so many question marks around schools and COVID. And I think from Mm -hmm. what I've seen, people are like, I, I couldn't be there fast enough to get my kid vaccinated. So, but but I don't really have any personal experiences with people who don't want to get their kids vaccinated. Yeah. So Brandon, can you, I mean, if you're willing to share, like what, what are these family dynamics like with your sister? Like, are you still spending time with her even though she isn't vaccinated? When they, when they come visit Chicago, they live in Ohio. Um, okay. I still hang out with them, still kick it with them or whatever, but, mm-hmm. um, and then they, they wear masks. Like she's very COVID conscious in that sense. Interesting. But she just feels like with, with a lot of like people do that there's um something that you can't trust about the vaccine just yet. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think we're all struggling with how to communicate at this point to people that this is harmless, um, right. you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's hard to, to balance that, you know, the, the the context of, you know, the mistrust of government from black people and it's an understandable sure. mistrust with this Absolutely. simple health mandate that, you know, you got to get shots to go to kindergarten. You got to get shots to go out of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the struggle right now. Um, we're still working on it. I think I think she'll get there. And, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of people, I think misinformation plays into it. What you oh, see totally. on social media, it doesn't help to have Nicki Minaj talking about infertility <laughs> and swollen <laughs> testicles. So, yeah, geez. oh, my God. <laughs> What is going on? <laughs> that stuff doesn't help at all. So I think once that noise gets quieted out, I think we're going to get closer. So um, in like extremely different non-pandemic related news, one thing that I really want to talk to you all about is The Bachelor, um, which I have to admit is not my strong suit. I've never seen an episode of this show. Oh, my God. Um, but we have had three different producers now who are intense fans and keep pitching topics. And we have never actually had two panelists on who are also Bachelor fans. So the time is here. And now, Brandon, you're not only a Bachelor fan, right? Like you have a bachelor podcast yeah i got a podcast called two bros in a rose two uh. black guys talking about the bachelor with uh, a woman panelist every other week and uh yeah i it's one of those shows i love and hate at the same time i love to make fun of it um i love to crack jokes about it but it is it's a show that people still are into because people are all trying to find love right and we are able to have conversations mm-hmm. about modern dating relationships and all of that through this show. So I think that's why it's still a thing, honestly. Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. And now, Mina, you've been watching for a long time too, right? Yeah, for years. I love these shows. <laughs> so Bachelor in Paradise is starting to wrap up its season. Um, the Bachelorette starts next month, and then we just found out who the next Bachelor is going to be. Oh, um, did we? Who is it? It's Clayton Eckerd, who's a 28-year-old white guy from Missouri. He works in orthopedic wow. sales. And he tried out for the Seattle Seahawks one time. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's an, that's an interesting pick. Brandon, I'd be interested to hear what you thought of that pick. I don't know about that. It came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess we're, we're going to see. I, better than Matt James, I'm assuming. <laughs> I, most, most things are better than Matt James. <laughs> I, I like 
liked Matt James actually. Did you? Oh I wow! Did. You got to hear this pod because I go. That was a that was a, a a weekly roast Matt James session. Oh, ooh, okay. I'm gonna go back and listen because I wanted I want to hear that. <laughs> so one thing I was really curious to ask Gail about, and Brandon, I feel like you kind of set this up nicely. Is like, yes, the show is about people who are looking for love and like have conversations around relationships, and you know, I think that is like a really earnest goal in the long run, and that can be very sweet. Um, but I mean, this year has also seen some pretty serious reckonings for The Bachelor. I mean, the the host, Chris Harrison, resigned under pressure from viewers because he defended a contestant whose racist behavior came to light after production wrapped. Um, contestants of color lately have been talking about race more directly on the show than ever before. I, I don't know. Like, I'm curious if you find that, like, refreshing and exciting or I don't know. I mean, what's what's your take on that? I know for me, I think it's long overdue. Um, mm. The the thing we grapple with is, as you know, with our show, Black Guys Watching It, is that we never really see anyone that looks like us, right? Mm. Which makes mm-hmm. kind of takes it out of reality TV for us because they're not reflecting America. They're not reflecting the world. Um, so the reckoning was long overdue. The question is, you know, are they actually going to do something about it? And, you know, right. the spotlight's been on the leads, you know, black leads, black contestants. But honestly, I think you got to look behind the scene, just like in journalism and all kinds of industries. Who are your hmm. producers? Who are your writers? Who are making the decisions? Are they all white guys? Are they all white women? Or do you have diversity in thought, right? Because there's some decisions that are made on the show. Where it's like, oh, they're cl- they clearly didn't talk to a black person before doing this. <laughs> so right. you, you can have a simple, you can, you can it just hire a black person behind the scenes, a few, right? And you can clear up so many of these problems they've run into. It's, it's really not that difficult. So I want The Bachelor to be better because it's a fun show to make fun of. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's struggling when it comes to that. It's not making the grade on diversity. That's really interesting because it reminds me of actually the next segment on the show is with Hannah Georges, who just did this amazing article for The Atlantic all about, you know, black people on TV and essentially like all the white people in the background. And there's this phrase that a black writer used that was negotiated authenticity, which sounds like a lot like what you're talking about, too. Right. Where it's like, well, Mm -hmm. as long as nobody's uncomfortable, then it's okay, You know? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. They're really not trying to rock the boat. They're not trying to offend their already built fan base. But the truth is, as America diversifies, their audience is going to die because as more and Mm -hmm. more people, you know, tune in and we get woker and woker, uh, the the Bachelor becomes less interesting when it's just a bunch of the same Mm -hmm. over and over. So it's in the show's best interest to embrace diversity and embrace new uh, new things. Yeah. What do you think, Mina? Like, how do those conversations work for you on the show? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely, Brandon. I think this was long, long overdue. I've been watching the show for way too long and just always disappointed by the lack of diversity on the show. Um, I don't think that, like, the steps that they're taking are genuine. I don't know, Brandon. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Like, I, I don't think – I think that they're just, like, reacting to backlash – and, you know, doing sort of like what they think they should be doing, you know, by mm-hmm. firing Chris Harrison, you know, those sorts of things. I don't actually think that they think that what Chris Harrison said was wrong, you know, for example. You know, there's a lot of room to grow on this show. You know, for as much as I love it, it is a deeply problematic show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a 28-year-old white guy from Missouri who wanted to play <laughs> I football. know, like, that's, <laughs> that feels like a backslide. It's a step <laughs> that feels back. like a deep yeah. backslide. <laughs> Yeah. 
So speaking of TV, you know, the Emmys were last weekend. Um, did y'all watch? Are y'all like awards show people? Definitely. I, I, I tuned oh, in cool. back and forth between football. <laughs> speaking of football, what about you, Mina? I didn't watch the Emmys. I usually do, but I didn't watch it this year. I think I was out of town. But I've mm. been like, I always like check in, you know, the next day with like with like who won and who was the best dressed and all the that dresses, stuff. The dresses, yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, Brandon, what'd you think? Like, was there anyone who you thought really should have won one that didn't? I mean, speaking of how white everything is, yeah. In a year where we had so much historic TV and diverse TV, mm-hmm. I was really disappointed that Pose mm. won like nothing, um, mm-hmm. and. Lovecraft Country, a brilliant show, yeah. limited series on HBO, that was the talk of Twitter and social media. Yeah, it got nothing. Got completely turned away. It's like the people that judge these didn't even watch the show. Um, that was disappointing. That being said, I, it's it was, we're just in a time where there's a lot of great television, right? Um, so it's also tough for me being a fan of shows like Ted Lasso. Uh, and and mayor of East Town to say they didn't deserve their awards either, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's just I think we're just in a golden age of TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mina, what about you? I mean, is there something that you wish had gotten some recognition in the Emmys that didn't? I will say that I think w- I may destroy you one for writing, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Michaela Cole. Yeah, Michaela Cole won one for writing, and I'm really glad that she did because she got snubbed at at the Golden Globes. But like that show should have won a lot more awards. A million I things. absolutely love that show. I just think it's a total triumph. And she is an amazing talent. And I, yeah, I think um, a lot of people agree too. I know there was like a lot of outrage when she got snubbed at the Golden Globes. So, mm-hmm. um, so she did win that one award. But if it were up to me, she would have won the whole damn thing. Great show. <laughs> truly, truly brilliant. It's It's a shame. And the crown. What's with the crown winning everything? That was I know. that made me a little upset because I'm not going to say I'm a fan of the crown, right? Like I've I I recognize it's good. Yeah. Do I enjoy it? No. But for it to win all these awards when they have so many more seasons to go. Yeah, I mean, especially given the last year with the royal family too. You know, it's just like re- like we're spending this much time with this like very problematic group of people. You know. Yeah, Ugh. it feels like so like. Like establishment TV, you know, I don't know. It feels just like, oh, of course the crown is winning everything. <laughs> like, yeah, this right. is the kind of show that always wins everything. Yeah, at least Ted Lasso is subversive in its own sneaky way, you know? Yeah, oh, I, I love Ted Lasso. I like Ted Lasso a lot. I think it's deserving of, of awards. Do I think it's better than I May Destroy You? No. But sure, sure. <laughs> but I do like fair. Ted Lasso. Yeah. I mean, Jason Sudeikis is bodying this role. I mean, this, yes. is, yes. this is amazing because yeah. this could be easily cartoonish and unfunny thing mm-hmm. that's what i thought mm-hmm. it was going to be that's why i wasn't watching it first and then people kept saying no this is a show with heart with real yeah. human storytelling yeah now these next few months might be tricky but that's just because we're going through our dark forest fairy tales do not start nor do they end in the dark forest that son of a gun always shows up smack dab in the middle of a story but it will all work out i think i saw a uh a an article or a view um, like of modern TV recently that was like sincere TV is like really in right now. Mm, <laughs> I think it's that's true. Fun. Yeah, I think it's true. And this this show is like um, at the top of that list, I think. Yeah, I don't think I'm mad about that, really, you know? No, we need like we need some heartwarming. Sweet yeah, my heart shows. is so calcified after the past year and a half. Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's a comfort watch. It's like a big exactly. hug. It's a cozy hug. blanket. Exactly. No, I think that's good.
Brandon, Mina, thank you both so much. This was really fun. It was awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, I'll let you ladies get back to it. I TTFN, yeah. In the 80s and 90s, sitcoms about the lives of black families were all over network television. There was Sister Sister, Family Matters, Living Single, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But while the characters on the small screen were black, the vast majority of the showrunners and the writers behind the scenes were not. Our next guest, Hannah Georges, is a culture writer for The Atlantic. She did a deep dive into this history for her recent cover story, The Unwritten Rules of Black TV, to see how much has really changed in the last 50 plus years of TV. And she is with me now. Hannah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey. So you talked to a lot of different people involved with a lot of different shows over the decades. Um, there's a phrase you use early on in the article. It's from one of the writers of Family Matters, and it really stuck out to me. Uh, it's negotiated authenticity. Can you tell us a little more about what that means? Ooh. Yeah, I remember being on the phone with her. It was Felicia D. Henderson who wrote for Family Matters, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, um, and she went on to create Soul Food, the show. Um mm-hmm. But she, I remember hearing her say that and being like, oh, that's something. <laughs> Just kind of thinking in the back of my head, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a, that combination of words. Oof. But the way that she laid it out um, is just this idea that Black writers are brought in to sort of rubber stamp stories about mm-hmm. Black characters, right? To say, like, this is how Black mm-hmm. stuff goes, right? This is right. Um, but that they are either just asked to do that um, and to be there, you know, like as window dressing or to be there... Um, to yeah, be the, the voice of authority, but also don't have any real authority in the room or don't have power or are only are limited by, you know, what what exists within or what is comfortable to a white showrunner or executive's imagination of black people. Yeah, the you cite specifically, I think, a, a really powerful example from the show Family Matters, an episode called Good Cop, Bad Cop. Um, for listeners who haven't seen it, can you like set that up for us a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's an episode where, you know, family Family Matters follows a relatively middle-class Black family in Chicago. Um, The father is, uh, Carl Winslow, is a a police officer, and he, his teenage son comes in one day and is really upset about an encounter with the police. Dad, we gotta talk. And says, you know, I was pulled over. They just, they pushed me to the ground. One of them told me to shut up. Just because I was Black and driving through, like, a white neighborhood. Um, And his father's response. That's unusual procedure. Unless you provoked it. But I did. Felicia remembered hearing that line and thinking no black father would tell his son that and kind of pushing back against that line as proposed or sort of that reaction from Carl Winslow. Uh, And the writers in the room looking at her as though she had said they were racist and then it was silent and it was it was a really stressful moment and, and revelatory for her in a lot of ways. I don't know. I mean... I think it's I think it's fair to say that on-screen conversations like that one have evolved a lot. I imagine conversations in writers rooms are changing. I don't know, like do you is it fair to ask you if you think they've changed enough in the 25 odd years since that Family Matters episode aired? <laughs> it is it is a fair question. Well, thank you. Good. I don't I don't know that the answer is fun. Well, I think that they have changed significantly. Mhm. That was um, what a lot of the people that I spoke with who have been in the industry said, you know, things are noticeably different now than they were 
you know, a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. And with that being true, that there's still so far to go um, before we're sort of in a place where like blackness, black characters, experiences, black stories, and the stories of, you know, any of all people of color, right? Like the, so much of this stuff intersects, um, but where we're so far from a place where those stories are not constantly filtered through what's comfortable or relatable or understandable to white executives and, and audiences. So since you wrote this article, the Emmys happened. They sure did. <laughs> An award show happened. <laughs> An award show happened. A while back, I think he was talking actually about the nominations. Um, e. Alex Jung, the vulture critic, tweeted that it's something that I think a lot of people were thinking when they saw the nominations, which was that the Emmys predictably chose white comfort. Um, I think you could argue that happened with who the winners ended up being, too, though the nominations yeah, totally. have a huge role to play in that. Right. Um I think it really ties into the final point of your article about how white industry power needs to invest in creative visions that don't match their own. When you see shows like that continue to lift up white creatives, what are the consequences of that? I think that it's tempting for some people to say that we shouldn't look to those shows. We shouldn't look to awards for a sense of validation. We know that like black art, the art, um, art that is subversive is sort of inherently not is, is at odds with that, right? That like getting those mm-hmm. kinds of awards, if the work that you're trying to do is to upend certain kinds of systems is, is just not going to happen. And I completely understand and actually in some ways agree with that, that line of thinking, but there are also tangible and material benefits to winning those kinds of awards, right? Like things tangibly changed for Lena Waithe after she won an Emmy. And that means that there's a whole slew of shows productions etc that like she can make that she can green light that she can be involved in that she would not have had access to if she didn't have that award and so at the Mm -hmm. sort of structural and like overall and almost like existential level (laughs) um I understand and really feel like that line of thinking and then when you're talking about you know individual people and the projects that they can make and the funding that they can get um this stuff unfortunately still really matters Yeah. So I don't know, like the thing that I found myself kind of wrestling with after reading your article is like, or at least wondering if you could answer even is like, if there is a metric that you're looking for in terms of general cultural improvement around this stuff, like, you know, you mentioned Emmys, like, is it about just getting as many shows as possible greenlit by black showrunners or marginalized showrunners? Is it about ratings? Is it about changing who's gatekeeping like do we just burn it all down and start from scratch (laughs) you know like it's just so complicated it's so ingrained right it's hard I think that people want um want to say like well when we reach like proportional representation in terms of characters right when like the percentage of lead characters on television matches like the the demographics of America then we're good I think that like obviously it's it's much more complicated than that um and so there's two sort of categories that I think about a lot as being um as like bookending the industry and being places where it could be really helpful really instructive for things to to change and one of those is sort of obvious it's like the executive suites what are the demographics there and the other though which is really quite hard to quantify i think is is more about the the opportunities that early career writers get i think when we get to a landscape where younger less experienced writers of color are are afforded opportunities to grow and to learn and to try new things then i think we'll start seeing more of a more of a sea change than we're seeing now 
Um, before I let you go, I have to ask, I mean, obviously you worked super hard on this article. Um, Issa Rae, who is an amazing showrunner, most notably for Insecure, but is also just like hilarious and amazing in everything she touches. Uh, she tweeted that she wants your article tattooed on her back. How insane was it to see that? Oh, my God. That was... <laughs> First of all, I have been contemplating a back tattoo for a long time myself, not of the article, but just a different <laughs> back a tattoo. a lot of words. Um, so I was like, wow, okay, we're going together. Um, no, I did not. I did not think that. I did not suggest that. <laughs> um, but it, it was it was really wonderful to see. I think I am a person who, like a lot of writers, gets quite anxious on the day that things publish and go out into the world. Um, and on that day in particular, I had actually tweeted the link to this piece and then just logged off like the rest of the day oh, and most of the next you. day. Thank yeah. you. It was, yeah, I, I don't know how I would have done it if I hadn't done that. Um, but because I was offline, I didn't actually see when she tweeted. I had multiple people send it to me. And that was a particularly nice feeling um, to know like that were my, like my friends letting me in on this really wonderful and, and quite vivid compliment <laughs> um, sort of added another another dimension to it that I think would have been different than if I had just seen it myself. Um, so I was quite, quite grateful for all the elements of that. Oh, that's amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you for your hard work. Um, I'm just so excited to see what you do next. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In just a minute, I talk with Meg Lauman about The Arbornaut, her new memoir. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is a pioneer in more ways than one, biologist and ecologist Meg Lauman, also known as Canopy Meg. She studies the stuff that happens in the Earth's treetops, buds, bugs, birds, and all. Meg just wrote a memoir. It's called The Arbor Knot, and it gets into the trees and hurdles that she scaled over the course of her career. She is here with us now. Hey, Meg. Hey, thank you for having me. What fun. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. So... Let's start with super basics. You study canopies. What exactly does that mean? Oh my gosh, great question. Canopy (laughs) technically is that green stuff above ground. So a corn stalk has a canopy. Hmm. A little piece of moss has a canopy that's about 10 millimeters high. But most people associate it with trees and it's where the green starts and ends. That means you are literally climbing trees, right? Right. I get to climb trees for a living. Can you believe it? (laughs) That is really amazing. So you wrote that judging a tree's health by its trunk is like a doctor doing a physical by only examining your big toe. Um, Can you unpack that a little? Like biologically, what do you mean by that? 
you know, 95% of the tree is really the canopy where all the flowers are, the fruits, most of the foliage, all the action. For example, because of a few of us arbornauts, we now know that something like 50% of the species that live on the land part of our earth are in the treetops, which is a huge number. On the other hand, we probably know less than 10% of them because there aren't enough arbornauts to really do the detective work required to go up into the canopy. There's so much missing. I guess we probably know more about the moon than we do about the canopy. And a lot of that's budget. Uh, the budget for NASA is a lot bigger <laughs> than the budget for tree climbers. And of course, the numbers of people in investigating the treetops is still really a handful compared to the importance of trees to our health mm. and the numbers of trees in the world, which are unfortunately dwindling precariously right now. Yeah, absolutely. You're one of the first women to to do the job that you're still doing now, which means, I don't know, like at what point did you realize this was a job you can even have? You know, I think about representation. It's so much easier when you can see someone who looks like you doing a job already. You know, I never really was at that point in my mm -hmm. generation, in my career. It was always something that I kind of really thought was out of my reach. I did have two role models, both deceased, Harriet Tubman, because she was this awesome naturalist that navigated that underground railway by mm. feeling moss on the north side of the tree in the dark, which I thought was so cool. And I loved Rachel Carson because she took on those chemical companies and helped us yeah. keep songbirds from dying by pesticides. So they were, of course, biographies that I just read about. And so I was tiptoeing in a man's world for a lot of my career. And I didn't even know girls could be scientists when I was young. And then I just kept studying trees. I love trees. I loved being outside. And one thing led to another. And suddenly I found myself getting a few jobs or getting uh, mm. research grants that allowed me to get jobs. And so I just emerged and evolved into this career. Like uh, it, it was a big surprise. I didn't honestly have my eyes set on some, you know, auspicious goal, like being the head scientist at the Smithsonian or something, because I didn't know that girls really could be accomplishing that type of thing in my era. Hmm. What's your advice to young people, I think little girls especially, who just can't seem to get enough of climbing trees now? I hope they're all climbing trees if they possibly can. I would advise girls two things. One is to be bold and smart. I was always afraid to be the top student in the class or get 100 on a test because people thought you were a girl geek and that was not popular in my day. So I do think girls need to just not be afraid to achieve and do the right thing. And secondly, I think girls need to support each other. Mm -hmm. I watch guys go to the pub after work or play golf together to make the deal. And I think most of my female colleagues were rushing home to buy the groceries or help the kids with their homework. And so I do think women need to help other women succeed. And the more that we can be a sisterhood, the better off we can share our successes and our promotions and our knowledge. I think that's great advice for all of us, whether or not we're kids, really, you know? Yes, absolutely true. Big kids are little kids. <laughs> <laughs> Meg Lowman, thank you so much for talking with me. This was just such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. 
All right, that's it for today. Hey, before you go, I have one quick, amazing favor to ask of you. You know that we here at Nerdette are all just a bunch of nerds, which means we love data, especially when it comes to what you think about the show. We would love to hear all of your Nerdette opinions. We have a survey going on right now. It's not going to be up for long, so if you can do it sooner rather than later, that would be amazing. The URL is wbez.org slash survey. And if you fill it out, you can even be entered to win a $50 gift card, which is pretty sweet. You could use that on ice cream or books or zucchini. I mean, really, whatever you want. There are so many options. Anyway, we would super appreciate it. That URL again, wbez.org slash survey. The show is produced by a whole bunch of nerds, me, Hannah Edgar, and Anna Bauman, and our executive producer is also a big nerd. That's Brendan Banaszak. All right, we'll see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.